Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Well, good morning, listeners, and welcome to Dark Night of the Podcast, which is a podcast that serves as homosexuals, uh, discussing topics of horror and uh, similar titles. Troy, how'd you do this evening? I did great, Roger. I'm staying at the bed and breakfast down the street, and there's some weird noise that's coming from the from the basement, but but I'm dealing, I'm dealing. Oh, I declare, Troy, I declare. I, You know, one thing I've learned after watching a lot of these here horror movies over the past several decades that has been my life is never, ever trust someone with a Southern drawl. Ever. Ever. Never trust someone with a Southern drawl. And if it's a pleasant, hospitable person with a Southern drawl, even more worrisome. Don't you agree, Troy? Oh, the poor Southerners get such a bad rap in horror movies. But yeah, you are absolutely right. When I, when that, well, we'll we're going to get there to this point in this movie. But when that bitch opened the door and she was all sweet as pie, she was sweet as pecan pie. I was like, this bitch is up to no good. Oh, she's up to no fucking good. But I got to say that broad plays that likable aspect quite well. Uh, something I got to say consistent over the course of this whole film that we're about to discuss today. It's a film that looks dated, it feels like it should be dated, yet you get these really strangely at times impressive acting moments from some of these random people involved. And I'm like, what movie am I watching? How the fuck did this go under my radar? 1984's Mutant? 1984 Mutant. That is the title we're talking about today. And it is a movie that somehow went under my radar for years. And I just never saw it until one day I randomly threw it on and I got swept away. <laughs> I got, I got swept into the, the, the rural southern bumfuck town uh, in which this movie takes place in, and I really enjoyed my stay there at that goddamn airbed and breakfast. It's good, Goodland, right? Goodland? Goodland, yes. Goodland, Goodland. Alabama, I'm assuming it's Alabama. <laughs> but no, I had never seen this. I had never heard of it. So this was quite the treat for me. So I literally went in blind. I knew nothing about this movie at all. I read the little plot synopsis and was like, oh, okay, it's going to be a typical mutant zombie chemical waste turning people to zombie films. And it delivers that. It delivers that. Uh, and a few extras. I'm assuming, though, Roger, just because I don't feel like this is a very popular title at all, you know, we got to tell our listeners, hey, if you haven't seen Mutant. Oh, if you haven't seen Mutant, please do me one. Do me a solid, listeners. And if you're going to watch any of the random obscure movies we cover, let it be Mutant. I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I walked away, I have to say, surprisingly satisfied. I thought this movie was going to be horrible. But you know what? This movie offers all sorts of shit. Troy just started touching the tip of the iceberg. This movie is filled with so many things that I didn't anticipate from this movie. Uh, and it, yeah, overall, a lot of it was pretty damn good. So yeah, 1984 Mutant, directed by one Jod Bud Cardos, 
Hold on, Roger. You keep say, you keep saying you keep saying 1984. <laughs> People are going to think that is the legit title. You said uh, it like five times. Uh, I, but, <laughs> no, because there is another movie named that is yeah. from an alternate year, and people okay. are going to get confused. It is it's just called Mutant, <laughs> but it's from 1984. <laughs> it's from 1984. It's directed by John Bartardos, and it is a relatively low budget fare. Oh, yeah, but it you know it makes the most of its budget. It I makes think. the most of it, just like us, Troy. The making yeah. the most of our budget, the the budget we procure from Patreon. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> smooth segue. <laughs> That's how we're able to finance our upcoming Vegas trip. That's how I was able to go to Hawaii. Oh. <laughs> All these these eight patrons have really. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, they've really been. Uh, pad my wallet. God, I think I well, thank them. A, I thank them for the yes, gift. That's a good segue, though, because we, let's mention it. We thank you. We're, we we poke it a little bit fun, but we are so so grateful to our eight patrons yes. who have stuck by us from the beginning and are enjoying our content. I'm telling you, the patron. I wish more people knew. I'm not just making this up. Our patron. Our Patreon page is pretty bustling. We have almost 20 bonus episodes. We we try our hardest to engage with our eight patrons. We get some good feedback. We cover some great films that we probably wouldn't otherwise cover on this particular on our regular feed. Like that last one. Yeah. Tell me about that last one. Oh, we did Blood Frenzy. Oh, I was listening to it today, and I got to tell you. It's a good time. Blood Frenzy starring Wednesday Adams herself, Lisa Loring, who has a wonderful scene of pouring water from a canteen on her ample breasts. I mean, come I mean, on. we're talking ample, ample. So, you know, Patreon helps support us because, you know, podcasting, while we have a great time, we love doing it. There are minor Minor, minor expenses involved, the podcast, you know, having the website, the podcast host, all that fun stuff. So it's just a little bonus to kind of help us cover that, those costs while providing you with lots of goodies. So if you are so inclined, it's www.patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. Again, we have almost 20 bonus episodes, folks, for you to binge. We we recently dropped one that's a... a little bit different. It's a little new, uh, new territory for us. It's called Talking Bodies with Troy and Roger. It's like that song by Tove Lowe. You know, Talking Body. You got a sexy one. Now put it on me. That song. So it's our take on that. But we're talking about real bodies. We're talking about dead bodies. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about victims in horror movies. Horror movies we love. Anything involving horror. In general, and dead bodies, and dead bodies. We're keeping it loose. We're keeping it loose over at talking bodies, but it's it's just more of a conversation piece. We do a lot of reviews, but we got thoughts on other things. Yes, that's the thing is we didn't want to be like pigeonholed no. into doing all of these reviews constantly, even though that's what we do because we do it on the main feed. And for our Patreon, we wanted to mix up, so it's it's way more conversation. We discussed our thoughts on. The three big slasher franchises that have been rejuvenated, Halloween, Scream, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We discussed our thoughts on what we liked, disliked about them and where we think they should go. So again, not going to dwell on it. If you're interested in bonus content, check out our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. We, we're just pushing it because we do put a lot of effort into these episodes. The, the, the Patreon episodes are no art that we do not skimp at all. I mean, the Blood Frenzy episode is about two hours long. I mean, these aren't, we put a lot of effort into them. So we want more people to be able to check them out. And if you're not inclined to do that, then at least go to Apple Podcasts and give a five-star rating and 
with that, yeah. we will get on with it because we don't want to ramble about that stuff too much. Yeah. No, no, we want to ramble about 1984. Pause. <laughs> Mutant. <laughs> Mutant from 1984. Uh, yeah, you know, guys, here, here's one thing I got to say, and, and we've acknowledged it a few times, but I really just got to throw it out there. My pitch for Mutant is my pitch for, honestly, Tubi, because there are so many, so many, and a growing library of obscure titles that uh, are not normally at our disposal. Uh, for our viewing pleasure. And we can joke about Tubi and talk about how there's nothing but a wide array of really low-budget independent films, which I personally love. I mean, I think that's very endearing. But there's also a lot of, like, classic titles that just don't get a ton of attention. And there's also a lot of titles that just kind of, I don't know, kind of got lost in, like, the annals of, of cinema, kind of just fell to the wayside. Like, movies that maybe once had their moment kind of just faded away. And... I think Mutant is a movie that, like, I can't imagine anybody that I know. <laughs> if I were to say, name for me your favorite movie, I don't think there's a single person out there that's going to say 1984 Mutant. I just think it's a movie that just kind of got, like, lost in cinematic history. And, you know, there's so many movies released every single year. Well, in 1984, this came out with a shit ton of them, and it just kind of faded away. And I am here to pitch a... Mutant resurgence. I want to see people discover this title. Not saying it's the best title ever, because it certainly is not. But my God, is this title creative. Oh, yeah. So, folks, if you haven't seen it, I mean, Roger obviously mentions it's on Tubi. So, check it out. Because, I mean, yeah, I think there are a couple plot elements that play play better if they're not spoiled for you. And, of course, we're going to spoil them. So, warning shall we get into 1984 mutant absolutely mutant starring fucking wings hauser and bo hopkins well wings hauser stars wing wings hauser that's this guy's name it's the first thing you see is the credits go up and i was like i'm i'm off to a good start already with wings fucking hauser um but (laughs) in some ways what an opening i mean that grand score all the suspense is this frail middle-aged man stalks around this property and the music's like building and swelling as this guy breaks into this mysterious house, goes in through the basement, through like a storm cellar. And he goes down into the basement and uh, you get this like, just really kind of like building suspense. This is something this movie actually does very well multiple times over the course of the film. But right off the bat, building and swelling until this guy discovers a closet in which there's a body. And we learn this because a hand drops out from the shadows. And there's this mysterious cut on this hand. And he's obviously startled. So he turns to leave and he turns right into a mysterious hissing figure who kills him in a shadowy silhouette. Yeah, you get the nice shadow silhouette of the figure lifting him up by his throat uh, and growling and blah, 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 and then dropping him. And we see a shot of his dead body and his neck area is like smoking there's literally smoke coming off from yeah. this guy's neck. That's a, an ongoing thing that we see over the course of the film is, is the usage of smoke in this film uh, used in a way that whenever the assailant makes contact with somebody, they tend to smoke from their hands. Something we see a lot of. And we see it right off the bat here. And watching it over a second and third time, I realized, realized just how well this opening actually does set up what these things are right away. 
I didn't catch that the first time I viewed it because I was kind of like, what the fuck is going on? You don't really go into Mutant knowing exactly what you're getting into. Absolutely not. Yeah, I, I watched the opening for the first time as well, and I was like, okay. I mean, typical horror movie opening, someone going into a house and getting killed. We've seen it dozens of times. But yes, if you're paying attention, it does pretty much set up everything you need to know about what these creatures are in a very subtle manner. But that's the opening. And we then cut to a convertible cruising down the street with our two protagonists. We got Josh, played by Wings Hauser. Say it again. <laughs> Josh, played by Wings Hauser. Oh, that name. <laughs> and Mike, played by Joey Lawrence. Actually, <laughs> joking. <laughs> played by Lee Montgomery, who looks. Uh, stunningly similar to Joey Lawrence in all the best possible ways in all the best possible ways. I was not prepared for this. Let me tell you. Okay. We doted on Rodney in our blood hook episode last week about being gorgeous and cute. And okay. I forgot all about Rodney. It's all about Mike now. Oh, and not only that, not only is Mike just a fucking bon eyed angel. And every time he's on camera, I swoon over him. Oh, me too. But he's also, Quite a competent actor. And the director really knew how to bring out his performance because at least the director had the common sense to make sure this guy was shirtless the entire movie. Oh, my God. Well, but something to give the the director real credit is there are a lot of characters in this film I could potentially hate, but because I feel like they were actually probably directed fairly well, certain characters actually kind of transcend. (laughs) And, like, I end up still liking them. And to counter Mike, a perfect example of that is his older and just distinctly less attractive brother. (laughs) Like, 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 I'm sorry. One of these things is not like the other. (laughs) I mean... Are you trying to say Wings Hauser is unattractive? Okay. Here's the deal. I'm going to give... I'm going to give him a, a compliment and then a critique. <laughs> Hauser, um <laughs> is honestly rather charming in the role of Josh. He is a pretty well-played and likable character. Wings Hauser also looks like the titular character from that movie, The Mask, starring Cher. <laughs> Remember The Mask starring Cher? Because Wingshauser <laughs> looks straight off the fucking poster art. But that being said, I, I'm sorry, Wingshauser can try all he might. Wingshauser is not ever going to be Mike for me. <laughs> because Mike is the perfect, perfect leading man, in my opinion. He's got a full pout. He's got a hairy chest. He delivers dialogue competently and with emotion. I mean, this kid is a dreamboat, and he's really great in this role. There is that uh, childlike innocence to him, and he is very sensitive, which is definitely a nice antithesis to the Josh character being more, you know, manly and, you know, all about Oh well, we gotta you gotta toughen up and stuff like that. Where where Mike is not afraid to show he is sensitive and and that he is caring and that he is concerned. Uh, I think they are a very good duo and they play well off each other. Their personalities are different enough that they complement each other and send it in kind of a weird way. And even though yes, Mike is infinitely more attractive, 
Um, you do sort, you do buy them as having a brotherly relationship for the most part in the scenes they're in. Now I do have an issue later on in the film, but the scenes they're together, you buy it, you buy it. And there's actually a few touching moments between the two of them that I wasn't really anticipating because you really don't see a film go there between two male characters like this one did and really show a relationship where they care about each other. And we'll get to a point here in a few minutes where Mike says something to Josh that you just don't hear in, in movies much because they, I, I don't know why, because maybe they're afraid for, for male characters to show any emotion or affection. But I really, I really appreciated the Mike character a lot. Not only is he adorable, but yeah, he's just a very you know, sweet, caring individual. Building off of that, Troy, I want to agree that one of the, greatest appeals. One of the things that honestly makes this movie feel way less dated than it technically should, because there are aspects of this film that are extremely dated. But when you look at how these characters, a lot of these characters are written, especially for such a B sci-fi horror film, they're actually handled with like a lot of care and grace. Uh, that uh, it, it really is an example of, a, 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 I, I really think, a director who took time to work with his talent to bring out the best performances out of them. Because, yeah, these two men opposite each other are given a lot of little moments to really develop their brotherly relationship. And when there are a few of these very caring moments, there's almost an instinct in me as a gay man to be like, oh, that feels homoerotic. But... Because they take time to really establish that these two are just brothers that care about each other, I can't really crack that joke. It just it feels too natural, you know. Yeah, and we do ask. We also learn that they haven't seen each other for quite a long time. So this is their this is the, the first time they're seeing each other, and they've decided to go away for this weekend trip to somewhere in the south. We never learn where technically their destination was because they never make it. But they were taking a trip together getting some bonding time because they haven't been, they haven't seen each other for a while. So we do learn right away that, like I said, Mike is very uptight. Josh is kind of a jokester. Uh, and Mike is like nagging Josh immediately about what the way he's driving and he needs to keep his eyes on the road. And Josh makes this joke where he's like, Oh, come on. You need to loosen up. Uh Oh, uh Oh, my eyes are closing. My eyes are closing. He starts to close his eyes while he's driving as a joke. And of course, this gets Mike really worked up. And what happens is a truck is coming down the, the, the road in the opposite lane. And because Mike is or because Josh is goofing off, he swerves into this other lane and almost hits this truck. The truck has to swerve out of the way to miss them. Of course, Mike is freaking out. He's like, oh my God, you almost killed us. And Josh just thinks it's the funniest thing ever. He's like, oh my God. He's like, lighten up. You know, I was told once that an encounter with death is like an encounter with life. You need some, you need to be energized a little bit. And as they're chatting away, the truck has turned around and rams into them multiple times. Yeah, it it, it almost harks to uh, the kind of vibe uh, that Jeepers Creepers gives you for a moment when the vehicle just pops up out of nowhere and rams into the rear of the vehicle for for a moment. And that launches into something a, a bit more sticky. Uh, as we learn, these rednecks are kind of getting their revenge. Uh, and that this near accident is completely Josh's fault. These hilljacks definitely deserve to have their vengeance. The one 
blonde popping her head out the window like, we're going to teach you city boys how to drive. Like, you know, and they, and they taunt them until they end up knocking the car uh, off the road and into a, a, a ditch. Uh, and this whole little accident moment is surprisingly well done. And this is something that's consistent throughout the film. A lot of times this movie sets up to pull off some slightly bigger sequences than I think you'd anticipate. And I'd say most of the time this film actually succeeds. Like when they do a car crash, it doesn't look like like a fake little prop or I don't know, like it's a poorly executed or poorly edited or trying to cover. Like when they show the car crash, like you see the car go off the road into the ditch. Later on, you see a car fucking flip over. You see the whole goddamn thing. And like they show it. They don't try to cut away from it or edit around it. And I think that's impressive, like really impressive for a film of the size of this caliber, you know. But the truck is full of uh, a bunch of good old boy rednecks from small town southern USA and they're led by their leader Al, who becomes a pretty prominent character throughout the film unfortunately. When Mike and Josh crash, Al does get out of the truck and taunt them. They throw a tire down at him as like a life preserver. And they're like, we're going to get you, boys. We're going to see you later. And they take off. So now Mike and Josh have to walk into town, which is God knows where, you know, miles away. So they're walking. A car passes. And Mike is like, I bet you I can get it to stop. And, you know, he he has a shirt. His, this whole movie, he's either shirtless or he has this flannel shirt on that's unbuttoned the entire time with khaki so you see his nice defined chest his hairy little stomach and he gets out on the side of the road and puts his thumb out like like he's hitchhiking and this car drives on by you know damn well there was no gay man driving this car because the brakes would have fucking squealed to a stop <laughs> oh my god absolutely absolutely this i mean what a sight to see and yeah it only gets better it only gets better you only see more of this man's torso. So, I mean, if you're a gay man and you like attractive, hairy, otter-like men with no shirts on, this is the movie for you. Uh, another uh, truck comes and, and Josh jumps in the middle of the road to try to stop it. And the truck does not slow down. So he has to jump off the road to safety. And it's very sticky. The truck does squeal to a stop. Josh goes over like he's going to fight the guy that was driving for trying to run him off the road. And it was just some old... Some old Southern man named Mel. Mel is so pleasant and willing to assist. He is, he is super pleased. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't see you, sir. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, we're trying to get to town. He's like, well, I'm heading that way. I can give you a lift. If any moment here is almost homoerotic, somewhat like homoerotic, it's this whole moment with Mel where they're, uh, it feels like Josh is almost kind of hitting like this guy likes dudes because uh, he starts talking about little green men. And the way he references all of this dialogue, and at one point he even uh, grabs Mike, I think, by the arm. And this whole kind of tone is very, like, gay undertone to me. There's not a lot of gay undertone in this movie, but this sequence definitely feels like it has it. He talks about little gay men, or little gay men. <laughs> little, <laughs> little, little, gr- little green men. How little are they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, little green men and perverts. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And so they get in the truck and they're driving down and Mel's just talking to him away about how he goes hunting. And Mike asks him, what do you want? He's like, anything that runs away. Mm-hmm. And Mel's super pleasant. But all of a sudden, like, he just like stops in the middle of the road. He's like, well, I, I, I got to let you out here. I, uh, I'm running a little more late than I thought I was, but the town's right down the street down there. So just walk a, a little ways and you'll run into it. It turns out that Mel was just 
pretending to be a local as he drives away, he speaks into a walkie-talkie, confirming with someone, mysterious someone, uh, that's nothing but a couple of city kids. It's nothing to worry about. Yeah, he does warn them, though, before they get out of the car. He's like, be careful, because the last couple people that have gone through this town, outsiders, they've done disappeared. He, he does hit at the fact that there are lots of people missing in and around this area. We've seen this before in movies where it's like, oh, for some reason, people keep missing around town. Uh, this, is a, this movie is not trying to redesign the wheel in any way, shape, or form. You know, like this movie is kind of sticking to a formula that's worked, that's tried and true, but it does put some of its own flourishes on, as we will learn. I enjoy this moment here where the boys arrive in town. They're walking up to the local bar and they're seeing just how like dilapidated and uh, abandoned this town feels. Like all these shuttered windows, uh, restaurants that are closed, businesses aren't operating. The only thing that's active is a, is a bar. And so they start to approach the bar and as they're walking up, they see this drunken man kind of stumble from it and waddle up into an alley and disappear into this alley. And I just like the way this kind of naturally progresses the way the story flows into this first attack coming up feels very well executed it's jack's tavern right isn't that the name of it jack's tavern it looks like a just a little hole in the wall bar that you'd find in any little southern or midwest town they they hear the man they see the man go kind of walk away down this alley and then they hear him screaming they hear him start screaming because he is as this guy gets down this alley we do see that he's immediately attacked by something right and he's screaming, and Mike hears, and of course wants to go help. Yeah, yeah. But Josh is like, "No, no, let's just ignore it. It's none of our business. Let's go. You know, we need. Let's go in for a drink. Call, call for help." But Mike insists, so he jogs across the street, goes down this alley to, to try to find where the scream was coming from. Josh has no choice but to follow him, and they come across this drunken man's body has like a. Big old chunk of skin missing out of his face, it looks like. And he's clearly dead. Yeah. It's heightened. This whole moment is heightened by a really well-timed train that, like, screeches by just as the body flips over. It's super effective. Uh, it adds this, like, very dark, ominous tone to the moment. It's just a really good kind of introduction to this, like, suspenseful vibe that carries through the rest of the film. It's the first time these guys have any encounter with anything suspicious, and it really kind of, like, launches right into it from this point. I really like this moment. It's just creepy. It builds really well, uh, and I feel like it's impactful. When that train screeches by, I actually, first time I watched it, I jumped a bit. Yeah, it definitely builds some atmosphere. Mike is is obviously very disturbed by finding this body and he wants to go back to the bar and call the police so they go back to the tavern mike goes in i would think that he'd be a little bit more urgent about it but he just kind of strolls up to the strolls up to the bar there's this old bartender working he's like uh yeah do you guys have a police department here and the, the bartender's like yeah why he's like yeah uh, i need to talk to the police he's not very urgent about it like if it was me and i just found a dead body i'd be running in there screaming my fucking head off. Oh my God, there's a dead body out there. Call the police. But he's very calm about it. But right away, who's in this freaking bar? Uh, the rednecks from earlier. The rednecks from earlier, led by Al. I think that's actually why his demeanor changes. Because I, I, I really don't think that this is like an example of 
his acting not being up to par. He's actually oh no 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 I'm not, no I don't want to say anything about the performance. I'm just saying the character yeah. uh, himself doesn't have any sense of urgency. Right, and I couldn't tell if it was because he saw the rednecks in there or not because when they approach him he acts like he had no idea they were in there maybe he just didn't want to cause panic i don't know it just seemed like for for this character that so far has been painted as being so like sensitive and uptight i would think that seeing a dead body would cause a little bit more urgency and hysteria in him but he's actually pretty calm about the whole thing i think you hit the nail on the head with saying that he doesn't want to cause panic that's the vibe i got um i because he does seem pretty rational too at the same time like he's the one that's like he's a stand-up guy he's insisting on reporting this whereas the 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 brother's kind of like let's just kind of like get out of here you know like the brother doesn't really even want to deal with it but mike is such a stand-up character which makes him so much more likable you know yeah yeah but i have an issue with some of the characters throughout this film like not really having a sense of urgency about certain things and this was kind of like the first example of it that really stood out to me but of course al comes up and starts harassing mike immediately like threatens him and pulls a knife on him and josh comes in right at the right moment and it just this proceeds into a giant bar brawl complete with mike being sliced open in the shoulder with the knife pool cues being beaten over characters beer bottles being broken over people's heads it really culminates in al knocking josh to the floor and getting ready to fucking looks like cut his throat with a broken beer bottle i'm like what the hell kind of violent shit is this and the the sheriff intervenes at just the right moment and basically tells al and all of his uh, groupies to get the hell out of here al makes a quip about the sheriff being an alcoholic which we find out very much is the case and he vows that he's going to get the boys it's a pretty well executed sequence like yes, this whole fight it, is. it just and, and another thing this is another area where this movie does a little bit better than you'd anticipate there's several choreographed fight sequences and they're always pretty intense pretty well shot pretty well executed uh i like this whole sequence and the introduction to the character of will the sheriff written with really well when you have this like, this tension between him and albert who instantly brings up the fact that he's the reason that the city is like failing and hints at his being you know an alcoholic um they drop these little kind of character developing tools right off the bat in this little brief bit of dialogue i really liked how they handled that yeah, I do like I, yeah, there's a lot of really well executed stunts in this particular scene. You know, you get the you get the the guy that grabs Mike by the throat and lifts him up against the wall. But the sheriff comes in and just lets everybody leave. Like literally this Al guy just stabbed somebody. And he is basically allowed to let yeah. be let go. Yeah. Like nothing happens to him. Like there's no, no talk about pressing charges for, for assault. So I was thinking this town must be run by the Academy. You can just assault somebody and nothing happens to you. <laughs> but yeah, so, but that, yeah, they, the, the sheriff lets Al and everybody leave, you know, right away. Josh is concerned about Mike's cut and is like, Hey, do you got something for us? So they bandage it up and the sheriff's like, you know, I want you guys to get out of here. I'll take you to a doctor, but after that, you're going to leave. And of course, Mike is only worried about the dead body. He's like, no, this is what we're here for. There is a body across the street in the alley. You got to come look for it. 
Uh, so they lead him to where the body was, and it is a it's a it's a drunken, friendly, jolly old man. This man is so nice. He is the nicest drunk man I've ever encountered in my life. He's so pleasant, and he like you know he's turned over on his side, so they can't tell who it is right away. So when they flip him over, it's like surprise. It's not the same person you found who was dead a minute ago because they're both in flannels. It looks kind of similar. But he just like waddles away. And Mike is still being really insistent that, like, you know, we saw a dead body. This is not the same person. So even after the sheriff kind of plays it off that he, like, you know, has them leave, he's going to take them to see the doctor and they need to, like, move on with their, you know, day. He does stop and he takes, like, a sample of this, like, strange green-brown fluid on the ground in the dirt. It's gross. I thought it was diarrhea. I was like, did that dead guy take a shit and he's putting shit in a tooth? Uh, it does, looks it like... does look kind of like diarrhea. It looks, it looks like melted peanut butter. It's gross. <laughs> it's it is disgusting. disgusting. It is gr- I would not touch it. I'm sorry. I don't know what makes the sheriff think that, oh, I better scoop no. some of this stuff up. <laughs> Strange, but I think it's one of those things like he, you know, I think he just doesn't want these city boys in his town because it's just causing more problems. But I think he already knows there's reason to concern because people in the town seem to be aware that like people have gone missing. So, like, I think it's one of those things where he's trying to play it off one way, but he takes the sample for his own reasons, you know, and then he takes he takes them to meet Dr. Myra, who is lovely and fucking delightful. Dr. Myra Tate. I love her. Yeah, she's a no-nonsense broad, right? Yeah. Um, she stitches and bandages up Mike's arm and tells him, hey, you're good to go. What you going to do tonight? And he's like, well, the sheriff doesn't want us to stay in town. So she's like, oh, well, can you give me in the sheriff a moment? So she tells the sheriff that he, the, the, he is in no condition to travel. That she, Can she put the, him up in Miss Mape's place? The sheriff agrees. You do get a little banter realizing that the sheriff and Myra had something going on romantically, but it kind of went sour because of his drinking. But they still ha- they still maintain a very friendly, pleasant relationship, which I appreciated. Oh, I love their chemistry. Yeah. Both of these actors are pretty damn good. Myra and Will. They're both good in their roles. Um, and they have a really, like, yeah, pleasant... Uh, ex- all of their exchanges are really pleasant, even when they're kind of like ribbing at one another kind of she'll crack some uh, comments about his drinking and everything uh, a few of her lines are kind of targeted but they're never like mean uh it's more just kind of like stern she's very stern she stands her ground uh and yeah she's she's a strong woman she has a few pieces of of dialogue specifically talking about the fact that because she's a female doctor in a small town a lot of the, the, the townspeople just don't want to come to her and it's it's a nice little bit of uh, additional character evolution that we get in her because she is a rather likable character. I would like to have more with her, to be honest. And I appreciate that the fact that they do have that kind of very sweet, non-sexual form of romance energy between the two of them. Oh, well, he asks her for a favor and she's like, sure, what, what is it? And so he takes out the, the little container that he put this brown liquid in and it immediately burns his hand, which is like, what the fuck? And he asks her, can you please check on this and figure out what it is? And she is like, okay. She can tell she's a little concerned because what the hell is it that's, that's burning his hand. 
He also makes this weird quip about um, after she makes a quip about his drinking, she makes a weird quip about the college aged boy that she has working with her. And I don't know if that's supposed to be the guy that we see later in the film, but this guy is far from a college age boy. I don't know. Oh yeah. She implies that Will's jealous. And this man looks like he looks like he would be Will senior to be honest, but okay. Whatever girl. Like I get it. She's trying to make him jealous. She's still, they clearly still have feelings for each other, which is sweet and sad. But so then uh, they, they then transition to the moment where the boys arrive at, Mrs. May's lovely home. And let me let me learn more about Mrs. May's because this dame at first appears to be a fucking delight. And she's so southern and so hospitable, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. She is. She she answers the door and she's so sweet. She's like, Oh, what are, what can I do for you boys? And they're like, Well, the sheriff says you have a room that we can we can rent for the night. She's like, Oh, certainly come in and make yourself at home. So she takes him upstairs. And she opens the first room and it's just, it's a decent looking room. There's nothing too exciting about it. It's a little single bed, nothing fancy. Josh certainly is excited about it. So he hops in the bed. He's like, oh, this is my room. I guess I get the bed. I guess you're going to sleep on the floor. And Miss Mays is like, well, I was thinking you could get two rooms for the price of one. These bedrooms, Troy, are fucking delightful. And she's only charging $15 a night. Fifteen for two rooms. A steal. A steal. Now, she says, "Well, who's going to go with me to the next room?" And Josh, I mean, he's like, "Yep, Mike is. This is. I'm staying right here." So she takes Mike to his room, unlocks it, and it is much nicer. Much nicer. More decorated. Oh yeah. Bigger bed. You know, more. Just looks a lot more cozy. Uh, and he even makes the comedy. He's like, well, wow, there's a big difference between rooms, isn't there? And she's like, well, a, gr- a growing boy like you needs a big bed. This woman is trying to fuck this young man. I was like, well, I could, I could think of something to do on oh, that yeah. big bed with him. Make it rock. Make it rock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a, one piece of dialogue leading up to this that I think is very key. As she's leading up the steps, she says that she still makes the beds every day because she lost her daughter recently and that she's uh, that's why she rents the spaces out. She still makes the bed. She still has all these rooms active. And so that's why she basically has kind of like a bed and breakfast in a way. Uh, But it's to fill the void after losing her daughter who passed. Uh, So that's definitely something worth noting. Uh, I do love also that when Mike is like leaving Josh to the room, Josh makes like a cracks a line at Mike where he's like, She's just your type. <laughs> and it feels very much like a brotherly moment. Yeah. And there is a, a cut where we see Josh back in his room and he looks out the window and he sees somebody th- outside that looks like they're in a hazmat suit. Did I see that right? It's like someone creeping around in like a hazmat suit. Well, I mean, that I guess that would make sense considering what they find later on. Yeah. But I'm like, that's that would creep me out. It's the middle of the night and there's somebody in the backyard in a hazmat suit. Okay. Uh, Mike is getting ready to go to sleep he's she's shirtless he's wounded he's bloody and wounded yes yeah poor boy josh barges in doesn't even knock just barges in there is this sort of moment between the two of them where we still see that mike is still wanting to do something about that dead body they saw and josh is like i don't care i don't it's not my problem i just want to get the car fixed and get out of here and Mike is like, God damn, you are so damn selfish. 
Josh is like, okay, okay. I'll make you a deal. We'll get the car fixed tomorrow. We'll drive to the next town and call the cops from the next town. How about that? And Mike's like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. I want you to shake on it. So they shake. Well, actually, Josh does this stupid thing where he shakes his body first. But then they shake on it. And as uh, Josh gets ready to leave, Mike says, just want you to know, I love you, man. And Josh is like, oh, I don't think I've ever heard you say that. Kind of a sweet moment between brothers. Like I said, it's what I was talking about earlier. This isn't a moment that a lot of films would give you between two guys, between two male characters, whether they were brothers, father, son or not. Yeah. I'm really curious if the director, and I say this genuinely, if this director was a homosexual man, uh, A, because of how he lingers on Josh's hairy, fuzzy little torso, uh, let's, let's just soak it in. I mean, we get to bask in it. It looks real good. But also because, just because he, the decision to include a lot of these more genuinely sensitive, caring moments involving men, um, it doesn't feel of the norm of that era, you know? And it's very much, when I think of 1984, I don't think of movies that necessarily portrayed men as soft and caring. I think of, you know, action heroes and people throwing grenades and, being real men, you know, like it just, it seems very um, sweet. And, and I appreciate it being in this film. It feels very authentic, very genuine. When it was well-placed, it was well-timed to have this kind of be their last interaction together before what happens. But yeah, Mike is, Mike crawls into bed. And can I just tell you again, how much he so reminded me of Joey Lawrence. Those, those kiss of the lips. From Blossom. From his Blossom eight years. Right? The not, not Joey Lawrence now, but his Blossom years. And you know what? I'll admit something. This is going to age me a little bit. But but Joey Lawrence was my first crush when I was a young gay. So seeing Mike just brought all those young gay feelings flooding back into me. Understandable. Because he is just adorable. Um, But he goes to sleep in the middle of the night. He is awoken by some weird scratching and pounding noises. And he gets up and he thinks it's Josh, obviously, at the door. And he's like, Josh, come on. What are you doing? And he realizes it's not coming from outside. It's coming from under the bed. So he bends down to look under the bed. And I like this moment because immediately, like, it's not immediate. Like, he looks under the bed for a few seconds, doesn't really see anything. And as he's getting ready to go back up, a fucking hand comes out from under the bed and grabs him and pulls him under the bed violently. I mean, this is a pretty intense scene. He is like clawing at the um, the bed, ripping the sheets, like literally ripping the sheets as he's trying to hang on for dear life and prevent himself from being pulled under the bed. I thought, I mean, I'd never seen this movie and this was like, this is a character that is very much set up to be a main character. I was like, oh my God, he's going to get out. He's no. No, he does not get out. He gets pulled under this bed and is murdered. Yeah, it's one of those scenes where like you're watching it, and at first you're like, "Oh, it's going to be a trick. You're going to think he dies, and like then he's going to come back." And then like you see like the shot of his legs, like his feet being pulled all the way under, and all the smoke starts billowing. It's one of those, like I mentioned earlier, the usage of smoke is pretty prominent and associated with death in this film. Um, and you see like his legs go limp and get dragged under the bed and you kind of know you're like oh my god 
they just killed off the character that, yeah, was very much set up to be the focal hero. And I think the decision, well, it's definitely a bit disappointing because, like, let's be honest, I would much rather physically watch Mike <laughs> over Josh. Well, is, of course. I mean, like, but it is, it's a very interesting choice for the younger brother who is very much the one that's picking up on what's going on for him to be the one that meets his demise. Uh, I appreciate what it does for the story. Well, I, yeah, I can tell you, I was very surprised when it happened. I, I was like, no, this cannot be like really happening. They're really going to kill this guy, especially after just the sweet encounter. He just had with his brother. It kind of reminded me, Roger, of the scene in the blob remake when Donovan Leach's character gets killed. Yeah. Because yeah. he is very much set up to be the lead character and is killed off within 20 minutes of the film and replaced them by a much less attractive <laughs> Kevin Dillon. So very similar, uh, but I was shocked. It, it, that got me. This got me that they decided to kill this character off. I mean, bold choice. And that's one thing that should carry with any viewer who maybe has not watched this. Any of our listeners, I think this movie does that a few times over the course of the film. It, it surprises me. It makes some really bold choices. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, something will happen. I'll be like, what? That is the last thing I fucking expected. And there's one specific scene coming up as we build towards the finale that really like kind of shocked me that they went there and did what they did. I'm glad they did that. Oh, I'm glad. But I've been waiting. <laughs> After the last few movies we watched, uh, th thank God somebody did it. <laughs> And I, I can't wait to talk about it with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I do like then the transition to the next morning because there's very, it's very bright and we get this swooping crane shot of the house, the beautiful, this beautiful, it's a beautiful white plantation house. We haven't seen it in the day yet. We've only seen it in the night, but in the day it's beautiful, has the huge wraparound porch and we have this very pleasant music playing. It just, Totally a shocking, you know, twist from what we just saw. It's now it's all playing it all pleasant and everything. Uh, Josh wakes up to go get Mike and he opens the door, goes in the room. And instead, Miss Mapes is in there making the bed. And she's like, I didn't think you were going to wake up. It's noon. He asks her if she's seen Mike. He, she says, nope, uh, I haven't seen him, but his stuff is still here. So he still has to be around. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to go to town, you know, to, to go to the gas station and try to find someone to help with my car. So if he comes back, will you tell him I'll be right? I'll be back soon. And she's like, I sure will. And he leaves. And this is the first time we kind of get that she really must be in on whatever happened because she looks over and she sees that his shoes, that Mike's shoes and his pants and everything are still on the floor. So obviously he didn't go anywhere. And she kind of smiles to herself that that uh, Josh didn't notice that. Yeah, they don't. They they make it pretty clear even earlier. There's a moment when she she shuts the door when Mike um goes you know goes to bed. She shuts the door and she turns to face the camera and she has this like moment where her face she smirks and her face settles. So they make it pretty clear that she is a person of suspicion right off the bat. Um. At this point, Josh, it's daytime, and Josh goes into the, the downtown of this small, impoverished town, and you get to see it clearly for the first time. And I do have to say that this setting 
feels very real. They did a really good job of capturing the vibe of just kind of like a desolate, abandoned, rural bumfuck town. There's like even Civil War flags lining the walls of the bar that he goes into. And it, 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 I mean, there's like 30 of them. And it feels so believable in that space, you know? Yeah, lots of lots of Confederate flags. Well, it's the same bar. It's it's the same tavern they were in the night before that they got in the fight with. But this time, nobody's in there except a lone bartender that comes out with a you know a, a rag on her head, covering her hair, and her name's Holly. And she he tells her that he's looking for her brother, and she's like, "Well, nobody's been in here all morning. You're the first one." He's like, "Okay, well." You know, I'm I'm trying to find my brother because our car crashed down the road, uh, and I'm gonna, I guess I'll go over to the gas station and see if it's you know if, if I can get help. And she's like, "Oh no, the gas station's been closed all week because Barney or whoever owned has been sick." Now we also get this overarching theme throughout this film that we find out all these people in town are sick for one reason or another. We don't know, know why, and they think it's just a flu bug going around, right? She also tells them, well, there's another gas station four or five miles away. I can take you because I have to go up to my school anyways and get some papers. She's a teacher. So she needs to go to the school to get the some papers. And so she'll take them to the gas station. He's like, oh, my God, you're this must be a small town. You're a bartender and a teacher. She's like, well, yeah, but I'm just helping out. My uncle owns this bar and all the kids are out of school anyways because of the flu. School's been canceled. And you can tell, you know, he's immediately kind of smitten with her, but he definitely gets way more smitten with her when she takes off the scarf from her head and she reveals this beautiful head of blonde hair. Miss Holly is striking. I mean, she's absolutely stunning. And while she's, she definitely isn't like my favorite dame in a genre film, she's not the worst. Like she definitely, she's not horribly acted. She's just kind of like that standard, like damsel in distress formula. But she also has a few moments that are a little like unexpected when she kind of rises above. Not many, but there's a few. But I like her. I like for, I like her for what she is. I definitely think she's lovely to look at. I mean, she's just beautiful, and she's definitely smitten with somehow smitten with Josh. She seems to really be a fan of him. She even says like. When she lets her hair down, she's like, "I must be a mess." And she, like, <laughs> and she does this thing. Trying, she does this thing with her voice the whole movie, where like she, she, her voice has like this warble to it, so it always sounds like she's on the verge of like an emotional break. And she'll be like, "Like we've got to take him to the doctor." Like you know, like <laughs> I was just with him a minute ago. <laughs> I can't put a, I can't put my finger on it, but listen, you'll hear it, and it's just very distinct. But I like her. I think she's a, kind of adorable. Nice to look at. Not the best actress in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they go off to, apparently, Holly's schoolhouse. Back at Myra, right? Myra Tate. The sheriff's there. He wants to know what she found out about that substance, but immediately she gives him a homemade hangover remedy. I mean, these people in this town (laughs) are not shy about shoving the fact that this sheriff is an alcoholic down his throat every chance they get. I mean, the poor guy literally just shows up at the at her practice and she automatically has (laughs) a hangover remedy made. She's like, I think you need the I figured you'd need this like every everybody. But the Troy, 
He's also there are multiple 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 I've been, scenes over the course of this film where where this man where this man is like actively like working as the sheriff and drinking out of like a bottle of like Jack Daniels like he's just throwing it back. He does finally at one point dump his bottle out and decide he's going to take a break, but that's brief because he turns right back to the bottle after that. Yeah, and I love that she's like making this mix this concoction, and you think that it's like the blood sample, like, and, and then she's like, "Drink this," and he does. You're like, "Oh!" But uh, she then reveals to him that the actual the sample from the other night actually was proved to be mutated blood. She goes kind of through a spiel explaining like all what she found in it, but it's mutated blood, and he requests that she gets it to the county medical examiner, uh, and right when someone breaks into the back. So they have this dramatic moment where they run back there and they find the fridge to be busted open and there's like blood, like bottles that have been broken on the floor and everything. And they realize like someone had broken in and stolen blood from the cooler. Yeah. One, the, I guess, I think the standout thing she says during this particular scene is she tells him that this is the substance that he found contained blood that basically no human could live with inside of them. Um, so it's kind of uh, our first real hint that something obviously not human is going on in this small town. We cut to the school with Josh and Holly. They go into her classroom. <laughs> you want to talk about little Billy or shall I? Positive note. Holly looks great. She looks straight. She looks like a Swiss, a Swiss Miss model. She, looks she like does. She's, she's coming beautiful. down from the hills of Switzerland. And then later on, she wears an outfit that looks straight off a Lana Del Rey album cover. She's really, I mean, she looks lovely. She's fashion forward, that Holly. Yes. And she finds that there's merely one child at the school. One child, uh, Billy, who is horribly dubbed. That was good. <laughs> Like they gave him. Is... They gave him an adult, an adult lady voice. I was Her like, voice what? sounds like she's like, "Boy, my parents are missing, <laughs> and I don't know where they are." Like, it's so unnatural, but it's brief. Luckily, it's brief because then, as quickly as they find him, she sends him back out into the world <laughs> without adult supervision uh, to fend for himself. And right when he leaves. They hear a scream coming from the boiler room. Yeah, and so they go down to check it out. And Josh tells her to stay. He's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check it out. You stay." And she's like, "Why? Because I'm a woman." <laughs> this, this is where the voice warbles again. She's like, "Why? Because I'm a woman." <laughs> but she's looking at him with like this, like look of confidence. She's so sure of herself. Josh goes down into the boiler room and unexpected very unexpected the body of a little girl falls from the ceiling on top of (laughs) she's covered in sores she's she's her skin is all black yeah i mean she looks like she's been through the ringer this kid and she's i mean she's clearly dead but then on top of that albert shows up out of fucking nowhere and he states that he's going to basically claim to people that josh killed this this girl somehow, some way. And then he ch- starts chasing him deep into the basement with metal pipes and they're hitting pipes against each other. They're fighting, they're breaking pipes. And uh, to defend himself, 
Josh breaks a pipe off the wall and manages to like produce hot steam, which he sprays into Albert's face. Well, Albert, we have to mention Albert is the janitor at this school because of course he is. That's why he was in the boiler room. But yeah, you look at this girl and it's obvious she's been dead for quite some time. She looks like she's decomposing. He's like, what did you just do to that little girl? I'm going to tell the town folk you killed that little girl. You know what we do to child killers around here? I'm like, dude, you can look at that girl and see that she's been dead for longer than this dude's been in town. Well, the, and that aside, I mean, doesn't it kind of seem almost like Albert is well aware of the fact that he did not kill this girl, but he's going to oh, be like, oh, Albert's a piece of shit. Albert's a piece of fucking shit, man. Yeah, I hate Albert. Yeah. The sheriff shows up to the scene, of course, and Holly is very adamant. She tells the sheriff, Josh did not do this. He was with me. And the sheriff's like, well, if he didn't do it, Why'd he run away? I'm like, again, can you look at this body and see that it has been dead for quite some time? Josh has only been in town a day. This child is literally decomposed. So the captain calls, and it's our first introduction to this the captain character. Um, and he calls and tells the sheriff, hey, I'm shorthanded, can't send help. Uh, just send the body to the corridor, and we'll get it taken care of. Uh, Dr. Tate, of course, comes to the scene to check out the body and she brings the sheriff over and lifts the, uh, the, the cover off the body. And of course she's the only sensible one that is saying what I'm saying. She's like, look at this. No human could have done this. And then like the body is leaking like the same substance that he gave her that brownish substance to analyze the diarrhea, the diarrhea, it's leaking <laughs> diarrhea, but she then begs him. She's like, let me have the body for one night. Let me have it for one night. He's like, you know, I can't do that. And she snaps at him. She's like, why don't you go out on your limb for one time in your damn life? And of course it gets to him and she flashes her big blue eyes at him. And he's like, okay, Myra, you can have the body for one night, but I'm coming in the morning. I'm going to, it's going to the corner immediately. And she's satisfied. She's off. She is satisfied. She's, she is on a mission to find out what the hell is going on in this town. Somebody has yeah, that to woman's be. Getting down to, yeah, she's getting down to business. She's sick of sick of the disappearances. She's taking things into her own hands. She's my kind of gal. Meanwhile, Josh reveals that he has been hiding in Holly's backseat of her truck. How did she not see him? I mean, she's a simple. This is a individual. This is, like, this is like a Yugo. It's not a. It's not a Ford Expedition like an urban legend. The beginning. This is a. I mean, you're literally going to see this six foot two man. Hovered in the back of your. He is like a, a, he's like a monster. He's like a giant troll. He man. just pops up. He's like, "Hi, Holly," <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, you scared me." <laughs> uh, meanwhile, um, the sheriff is going to the house of the family, the little girl. It's I think it's uh, the Mitchells to inform them that their daughter is now dead. Um, and when he gets to the house, he goes inside. He finds it's totally wrecked. And he goes through the whole house in this kind of like suspenseful sequence where he's going room to room. And he finally goes into this huge pantry. Um, and when he gets in there, he's grabbed by an older man who is covered in similar, the similar sores to, uh, you know, what we've seen on all the other bodies, but he's still alive. He's still conscious. And I was curious. I, I almost wondered if this was the same older man from the, op- like the opening of the movie. Cause it looked similar. I don't think it is, but they did look kind of similar. I don't know. Isn't this her, isn't this the child's dad? 
Yeah. Okay. So I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't get, I didn't catch that. It could be. I don't think it is. It's just in the moment. I was like, is it? I don't think I'm But right. he has like, his, he has that same like gouge on his face and he manages to like say something uh, before he dies. And he says, eh, 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 it's their hands. And then he dies. The sheriff has to go out and radio the captain to tell him to come take a look. And this is when he takes his bottle of wild turkey out of his glove box and takes a big old swig. But then he 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 catches himself and he you see this moment of like regret in his face and he does pour the whiskey out and toss the bottle. Yeah, he's having a moment where he's like, "I'm going to kick it. I'm going to kick the habit. It's short lived, but you know, kudos to him for trying." Um, at Holly's house, her Uncle Jack is ill, which honestly, at this point in the movie, is a terrible sign for anybody. Anyone who's ill, I wouldn't want to be around them. I would fear that they would become one of these acid creatures. Josh snaps at Holly for a moment because he's emotional over the loss of his brother, but then he quickly apologizes, and they share like a classic, like, I'm scared. I'm scared too moment. Um, but it's a, it's a sweet moment between the two of them. Uh, Holly is just so rural and she's nothing more than a small town optimist. And that living room that they're in is insane. Well, I do like the fact that he does admit that he feels responsible for whatever happened to Mike, that if something bad happened to Mike, he feels like it's his fault. And you know why? Because it is, you know, if he would have never, goofed off and closed his eyes and swerved into the other lane and then Al wouldn't have run him off the road and they would have never been in this small town to begin with right he tells her that and then he's like you know what you're pretty you're so pretty and she's like no no I'm not he's like yes you are and then they fucking kiss yes the slow building makeup sequence is unusually sensual but it's also kind of awkward because he's so not sexy. And he's even like, when he gets in really close to her, he's like, come here. Like, and it's just like, it's so like, Ugh. but it's, yeah, it's whatever. It's brief. It's a brief little moment between the two of them and their fledgling romance. It's brief because he, as he's kissing her, he like collapses from a sharp pain in his side. Yeah. Wakes up in the doctor's office with Miss Myra. Yeah. He's passed out. She asks him immediately, she's like, when you found that girl, did she touch you? And he's like, uh, well, she fell on me, so yeah, pretty much. And he's like, and the doctor's like, well, it looks like you're having a chemical reaction. And he says, well, how can I be having a chemical reaction from a child? She says, I don't know, but that's what's happened. I'm going to give you a shot, and you're going to have to go home and rest. The captain shows up. The captain, he's a no, no, he doesn't put up any bullshit. I, I like him. I like the captain. He's stern, as he should be. He shows up, the body of that man in the pantry is now missing. And the captain. Where did it go? Well, I, I think he got up and ran away because, it, you know what I'm thinking? Um, but the captain then proceeds to start threatening to suspend Will and begins just like insulting him. He's fucking tearing him apart. He's like, you're a drunk. You're always wasted. You're always. This is your bottle on the ground. Take this. And he's like, and you're a total piece of shit. And he's just a total, <laughs> he's a total asshole to him. We also kind of get in uh, this. We have to make an inference that he was brought to the small town from a big city. Yeah. Because he got in trouble or he got fired from his 
sheriff job at a big city because the, the, um, the captain's like, and I bet you were drunk when you shot that kid too. And you know, you only got this job out of pity. So there is this whole theme that, yeah, this, but it's never really explored any more than that, but I guess it really doesn't need to be. We, we get enough to know that the sheriff is kind of a broken, complex character, which I like. They do a really good job of giving us just enough with, I'd say, every major character in this film. The captain also tells him that uh, because the sheriff slips up and says that the child's body is now at Myra's and the captain's like, God damn it. Why is it at Myra's? I told you to take that to the corners. You don't make those decisions. I do. And he's like, if that body isn't back at the corners by the morning, you're going to be suspended. And then he sees the empty bottle of, you know, the wild turkey picks it up and says, this belongs to you and shoves it in his face. This sequence that follows is one of my favorite moments in the film. For a few reasons. Um, it's a, both a good scene and a, a scene that I can make fun of as well, for multiple reasons as well. There's this whole thing with Myra, who is, who is doing an autopsy on the body, and she's got like a recording device around her neck, and so she's like looking at the body and just like reporting what she's finding, and uh, her assistant like appears behind her. <laughs> And he's like, I don't feel very good. I think I've got that flu. And she's like, yeah. she's like, Shh, be quiet. Give me a minute. And so she starts to like go through all of like the, the effects and symptoms that the body's having due to these sores, you know, and the, this whole like blood issue, whatever's happening with the blood. She's like, so she starts like describing what she's finding. And as she's describing it, her poor assistant starts going through it like behind her in the background and it's kind of comedic because she's literally narrating this entire transformation sequence as it's happening however it's also like one of the most impressive moments in the movie because it's all of these like really great practical effects as this guy's skin starts bubbling and pussing and sweating and puffing up it's kind of crazy yeah, and if you listen to what she's saying, yeah, it, it definitely is exactly what's happening to her assistant. She says that the the substance is getting in the body and it's causing a complete breakdown of the nervous system, but then it also grows in volume when it's mixed with human blood. Um, and then she does call the girl. She's like, and this creature, and yes, I'm calling it a creature, she says, because it can't be human. It has a need for blood. And then she's like, and the openings on the hands are like the openings on the bottom of a leech. And they're used, it looks like, to suck blood from its prey. And she's like, Lord help us if this is spreading anymore. <laughs> it's so dramatic. But it's also just like very, it's a really entertaining scene. And then after she's done with her recording, she turns around and her assistant is there in the doorway, like full mutant. And what the mutants look like, we get a clearer view, is they have like skin, like paper white skin with really dark circles around their eyes. And it looks kind of chalky and kind of like cheesy. But then there's also times where it looks really effective. It's kind of just like a scene by scene thing. It depends on what's going on. But this moment is for the most part, actually pretty intense and pretty suspenseful and pretty effective where she gets chased through the whole building and he's turning tables over and, you know, trapping her in corners. It's actually a really intense scene. Yeah. She's not, she's knocking shelves over to try to get away from him. And he's 
these zombies are what they, these mutants are are they sure are loud for being one person they're like but she puts up a good fight but unfortunately dr myra tate it wasn't good enough that's a second character that i'm surprised met their demise yeah. he catches her and that's the end of dr tate yeah there's this really awesome moment where he grabs her and he like physically flings her whole body up into the air against the wall and looks really brutal. Um, and it cuts away before we see actually what happens to her. But again, you pretty much know that the girl's dead. The next morning, Josh is at his car with Holly and they obviously see that Mike has not been there. The car hasn't been touched. Josh is like, you know what? Some weird shit has really been happening since I got here. My brother's missing, you know, the, the little girl being found dead, all this shit. He's like, is there a chemical plant in town? And she's like, well, there's new era. And, but she's like, but I think they, they deal with other things. And he's like, well, we need to go to it. So she's like, okay, they get in the car, they go to it. Obviously it's, it's a big fenced in facility He's going to climb the fence and go check things out. And he again tells her, you wait here. And it's not because you're a woman. It's because if I get caught, I know I can run faster, which is still kind of a shitty thing to say to a woman. I mean, sh- women can r- run, you know, but, but she's like, you got 50. Well, she says it in that worbly way that you, yes. you got 15 minutes. <laughs> you got 15 minutes. <laughs> I do like how the way they introduce this whole, like, well, is there a chemical plant in town? She's like, there happens to be this large conglomerate. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it, it doesn't, why, why would he, what? It's kind of shoehorned in, but because it doesn't, why, it why is, would that be the, why would he even think of that? They're supposed to be reopening the mines. <laughs> right. Um, but then the, the, he go, he sneaks in, and I got to say, this trick he pulls with the goddamn rope is very impressive. I mean, that's all upper body strength. That winged like, hauser sure has some... <laughs> this man, I mean, he does do a few tricks in this movie that I was rather impressed with. As, uh, he's very strong, this winged hauser. Uh, so he does climb up into this barn, and inside the barn, there was a group of men in masks and biohazard suits who are blatantly pumping this chemical waste into the mines. Yeah, and as he's watching, the ladder he stands on breaks, and he falls to the ground, causing the workers to notice him. They charge at him, pull a gun out at on him, and we notice one of them is Mel, the kindly hitchhiker that picked him up from the beginning. I like this. I was like, okay, that's a good usage of this character, bringing him back for a little more. Yeah, Josh is freaking. I was like, you realize that stuff you're you're taking out is killing people? And Mel's like, we're not taking out anything. We're putting stuff in. We're dumping the chemical waste into the ground. We're not taking anything. What do you think we are, thieves? <laughs> There's a physical altercation, and, and Josh is like, you can't do anything to me. People know I'm here. And he's like, well, there ain't going to be anything left of you for people to find. And just as he's getting ready to shoot Josh, here comes Holly. Busting through the damn doors in her car with her car. I mean, she comes out of fucking nowhere. She just speeds into this building. I like to think that she's just sitting there. She's like, well, 15 minutes are up. <laughs> it just busts through this door. And she's like, get in. And 
he he jumps halfway into this vehicle and she starts speeding away with this guy just hanging out of the car. And in the meanwhile, she knocks all of the men into the, into the toxic into the sewage. Into the pit, yes. Yeah, so well, <laughs> to their deaths. Yes, she knocks the whole – and then the, the hose gets loose and goes wild and starts flapping around, spraying that diarrhea-looking shit everywhere. I'm wondering though there there looked to be like there were several different buildings on this property. How did she know that particular one was the one he was in? I mean, she sensed it. She sensed it. They're that connected. I'm a psychic. <laughs> I feel that they're that romantically connected at this point in the film. They're madly in love. Um meanwhile, Josh appears at the police station and appeals to the sheriff. Saying, like, listen, shit's going down. We need you. And the sheriff reveals to him that he's been suspended. And he has since, since drunken himself into a stupor. And so uh, he is, at first it seems like he is not really caring or willing to really do anything about it. Because he's like, oh, I know shit's going on, but I'm not in a position to do anything anymore. Yeah, he's he's done. Holly goes back to her house to get her uncle. She opens the door, goes in the kitchen, and we see the kitchen is a ransacked mess. The refrigerator's open. There's food all over the place. And in the meantime, we we see, because it keeps intercutting between her walking through the house to the upstairs with the, her uncle in the bed. He is now a mutant. He is... His flesh is bubbling and, and bubbles are popping all over his body. There's those two holes in his hand that start oozing that yellow liquid. Uh, she gets to his room. The light won't turn on. We have mentioned, we fail to mention the importance that light bulbs play in this film because yes. the mutants apparently don't like light. It hurts their eyes. So throughout the film, there are several moments where characters realize that light bulbs have been broken or taken out. So that lights won't turn on. And this is one of them. She gets to her uncle's room, turns on the light, but it won't turn on. And she's like, oh, Uncle Jack, what are you doing? You want me to help you? So she goes and pulls the bed sheet off of him. And he growls at her and attacks. Knocks her to the ground. Knocks the lamp over. Starts chasing her. All she can do is, I'm your niece. I'm your niece. Leave me alone, Uncle Jack. I'm your niece. And he's like, screaming at her. And just in time, the sheriff and Josh pull up and they hear her scream. So they run out, run up, run in the house, run upstairs. Uncle Jack, the mutant, knocks the sheriff down. But Josh is able to grab his gun and shoot him. And the Uncle Jack mutant decides to jump out the window and takes <laughs> off running through the neighborhood. This whole sequence is kind of wild. I mean, when they when they go with a bigger sequence, they kind of give it their all. I got to give them their credit. Like it's it, it's pretty violent. She gets knocked down on the ground. She's like dragging herself back, trying to get away from him, and it's just a matter of like really well placed like intensity, I guess. Like it's just the moments all feel like very intense. Good camera work. It just it hits. It all kind of lands sometimes. It does better than you'd anticipate. From such a cheesy B-movie. Another thing I want to really acknowledge for, like, consistently impressing me is the practical effects on this film. Like, you get several moments of these people like, transforming into these mutants. And it's always practical, obviously, but it's, it's a cool effect where the skin has, like, air pockets that are bubbling up. The hands are opening up and oozing green foam. It's really, like, well done. There's a lot of good effects in this movie. Yeah, um, 
I agree. The effects look pretty good for for the budget, and they, they they're kind of fitting with with you know the tone of the film as well. Like they're not too over the top, but they are definitely creepy and make these mutants definitely intimidating. I wouldn't want to be chased by one of these fucking things. They go back to the sheriff's station for him to get his gun. And the sheriff now obviously knows shit's real. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to step up to the plate. I don't care if I've been suspended or not. I'm going to go to Dr. Tate's, get that little girl's body and deliver it to the fucking captain myself so he can see what's going on. And Josh is like, ah, you go. I got to go find my brother. He have, I haven't seen him since the first night we got in town. And he's like, I even stopped by Miss Maves today and nobody was there. And they're like, oh, you stopped by? she wasn't there and josh is like no and they're like well did you talk to her daughter and he says well she says her daughter died and they're like well no penelope's still alive as far as we know the sheriff and holly team up to go to dr tate's to get the body of the little girl but they immediately find the place in disarray he finds her recorder on the floor and he's able to listen to her last moments. Uh, and he, he hears the whole ordeal, her dictating what the substance is, and then her being attacked and screaming. Um, and as he's listening, Holly standing in the doorway, the mutant assistant comes up behind Holly and attacks her. And he shoots it. Literally, the place in within seconds is full of mutants, dozens of them. I'm going to say that the mutants are significantly more intimidating in large numbers. And that is something that at this point, the movie kind of shifts into a far more effective survival horror film. Once you get this like large volume of, of mutants, it really ups the ante. It feels more like a true, like Romero-esque zombie film oh i mean i think one thing to be said about this and that was honestly one of my notes coming up is that at this point the movie feels to me like a perfect combination of romero's night of the living dead with romero's the crazies yes i would i, tell I mean you, yeah yeah you've got a little bit of both you've got you know with the whole chemical aspect affecting an entire city against this kind of like zombie like appearance and uh just overall like motor functions and how they operate these these mutants are very very zombie like the only thing that's really different is when they attack they have their hands held up because they use the holes in their hands to suck the blood out of which people. in its no i was gonna say which in itself is pretty terrifying yeah yeah they're, and so when they're in these like larger numbers they become quite intimidating and as you start to learn some of the other things they can do moving forward they become even more scary so there's still a lot more that we have yet to learn about these things which makes for a pretty interesting you know uh, uh antagonistic force i mean and there there's a large number of them too but they're quite interesting they don't feel exactly like a zombie they're they're, they're very much their own thing Josh goes back to Miss Maeve's house, uh, Miss Maeve's house, and I love that he just barges right in, and she's yelling at him to get out. She certainly isn't as kind and friendly anymore now, is she? He's like, "Where's my brother?" And she's like, "You get out of here! You have no right in here! Get out!" And he pushes past her and goes into the basement. He's drawn to the basement, goes down into the basement. She immediately closes the door and locks him in. <laughs> 
Uh, so he's down there. He goes downstairs into the basement and he finds a couple dead bodies. And one of them is Mike. Oh my gosh. I was so freaking bummed. And we have this touching moment where he runs over to Mike's body and, and hugs the body and is crying over the body saying how sorry he is. It's sad. It is it's a sad, sad moment because it now is. we're, I mean, we knew it. What we knew, but there was always maybe hope that he really wasn't dead, but no, he's dead. But as he's crying, he's suddenly out of nowhere, grabbed by one of those pale ghostly hands, which is revealed to be fucking Penelope. It's mutant Penelope. And I like this scene's pretty tense too. He like he breaks the, the basement window to try to climb out to get away from her and she pulls him back in and like they're brawling and he finally gets a hold of a like a torch like a, a, a like a lantern type torch and lights it into her face so that she you know backs away from him because they're scared of lights. So he runs back up the steps as she's attacking him and she he busts through the the door into the kitchen and fucking miss mapes is there with a fucking hatchet raised she's gonna chop she's gonna hatch him with a hatchet but he is able to grab her and throw her down the stairs he sacrifices her to her own fucking daughter and you can hear her screaming she's like i'm your mother you can totally (laughs) tell it's just a man in in an old lady wig oh i love it but this you know what this is another sequence story that actually is quite fucking good like there's this whole moment where penelope is chasing him through the basement there's all these like chairs hanging from the ceiling and like so she's like reaching at him through the legs of these like chairs it's it makes for a really cool visual and then when he does bust out the window and this guy breaks more fucking windows and this i'm shocked that his hands aren't just a bloody pulp by the end of it but he breaks out the window he's trying to climb out she grabs him by the leg and you start smoke starts like billowing from her hands because she's burning into the denim of the jeans it's just it seems like i use the term high stakes a lot when these things attack, it seems high fucking stakes. These things are going to kill you. Oh, yeah. And I love that he closes the door once he knocks Miss Mapes down the basement steps. You see her flip. You see her going head over feet down the steps. Or her old granny panties are exposed and everything. But when she gets down to the steps and he shuts the door and locks her and you can hear her pleading with her daughter. She's like, no, Penelope, I'm your mother. And then you hear it attack her. I love it. I, bitch got what she deserves. She did get what she deserves because she knowingly sacrificed Mike to this fucking thing. Yeah. And who we now know is absolutely, without a doubt in our minds, deceased. And we are pissed about it. The gays are enraged. <laughs> um, at the school, Holly spots one Billy. What is she doing there? Well, I think she fled from the um, the police station. I think she's just running on foot. And she sees Billy outside the school, and she chases him inside, and she finds him hiding in one of the restrooms. And so she starts to comfort him, and and she's holding him in the corner, and she basically convinces him to come with her, that she's going to take care of him, and they're going to get out of the town. You know, she's saying whatever she can to comfort him. As they go to leave, they're attacked by, like, a mob of his fellow students, so children. Mind you, these are children who are fully mutant and they're fucking terrifying. And there's like 50 of them. And in what I would say is probably one of like the standout moments of the film. Like I, I mean it because this is both kind of comedic because of the character, but also rather terrifying, all things considered. Holly and Billy go to take shelter in a bathroom stall. 
and the children can reach under the stall, so they immediately grab Billy by the legs, and in what is a rather horrifying and brutal death for a child, this, like, eight, nine-year-old kid is literally ripped from Holly's hands and dragged out of the bathroom by his peers and burned to death in a cloud of smoke. And you see him, like, screaming, his little face screaming as the kids just mob on top of him. And Holly's just flipping her fucking shit because she just watched a child get killed in front of her. Yeah, they kill poor little Billy. And all he, you know, he's been running around the whole movie trying to find his parents. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it is an effective scene. I, I personally find this to be, for as annoying as this kid is, the mo- watching the visual of this child get yanked under this bathroom screaming, like, it's quite intense. It really is, I think. Oh, it is. It is. It's a great scene. It's it's definitely not something you expect. Again, very few horror movies have the balls to kill off a child as well. So this film has already done a lot of ballsy moves by killing off main characters, killing off children. Uh, so, yeah. Josh shows up just in time. He hears Holly screaming. So he runs into the bathroom and sees all these mutant children as they're mauling poor Billy. He jumps up top of the um, the stalls, climbs on top of the stalls, and climbs over to the one Holly's in and gets her and pulls her out. So they're able to escape the children by crawling on atop the stalls and jumping out of the bathroom. And they, they, they get out of the bathroom just as the mutant children try to break through the, the door and come after The whole them. moment of them leaving, like you see all the kids like literally tearing this this thing up, like the whole bathroom apart. They're just ripping it apart trying to get to uh, Holly and Josh, and then when they they block the door and the hands just come through the glass, like these things seem like they're unstoppable. It really like th- th- these are children. Keep in mind, they really are quite intimidating. They are thirsty for the blood. That's for sure. They get out. They run into her car. She has Holly is hysterical mess, like crying hysterically about Billy, which is basically what she does from this point forward throughout the, f- the rest of the film. At least they gave her a good motivator to lose her shit, though. Yeah. Like, if I saw a child, if I witnessed a child torn apart by his peers, I would probably also be somewhat unstable moving forward. Uh, he asks her where the sheriff is, and she's like, uh, she's, he's still at Myra's. So they drive there. He goes in, keeps her in the car, tells her to lock the door, stay in the car, and... She does, and he goes back into the Myra's practice to look for the sheriff. Inside, he finds an ominous sign. It's the sheriff's flashlight, hat, and gun laying on the floor. And he kneels down to pick them up to examine them, and he realizes the doctor's dead body is right there. Outside, it has gotten unusually foggy. It's like a brush fire. Yeah, it just all of a sudden it's like super foggy. And of course, of course, Holly is attacked by a pack of mutants and they immediately swarm the car. They come out of nowhere and there is a, like I said, this is a horde of them. They're, they're, they're pounding on the glass windows. Their hands are able to like melt through the glass. I fucking loved this. Yeah. This, well, and first of all, the smoke thing, like at first I was like, that is way too much smoke. But think about it, like these, the wounds in their hands produce smoke. And so if you think of the fact that there's so many of these things coming, 
that it's almost like the smoke is like a sign of what's coming because there's a pack of them. It's actually, I think, quite an effective sequence. And it takes like, it takes its time with it. Like she's in the car, keeps cutting back to her and she's trying to look through the smoke, but she can't see anything. And all of a sudden, boom, these things hit. And I think they're probably their most terrifying in this specific scene. Just the, the makeup, everything is kind of like at its best. And when the hands start coming through the glass, like melting through the glass because of the acid coming out of them, I mean, like, I was like, holy fuck, this is kind of visceral and intense. It's really, really scary. Yeah, and what makes it, I think, even more intense is the fact that, you know, we at this point in the film have been shown that really nobody is safe. So it very much is plausible at this point to us that she could be killed because they've killed off so many prominent characters so far and the little kids. So um, she is screaming her head off. She she gets smart and starts to honk the horn. So Josh comes out and is smart enough to tell her to turn on the headlights. He starts beating all of the, the zombies off with whatever he can get the mutants off with whatever he can get his hands on. And she turns on the headlights. So that stuns a few of them. So he's able to get in the car and they start to drive away, but there's still a mutant that's on the roof of the car. And he slams his hand down on the windshield and like, it melts through the windshield and is reaching through as they're driving, trying to grab him. He swerves the car several times very hard to get the mutant off the car. But in doing so, he loses control of the car and it flips over several times. Oh, yeah. This is all building up into what is becoming the finale. And I got to say, they really paced this movie out well so that now within the last 20 minutes or so, we are getting these really big epic grand sequences where they're really putting a lot of their budget into these moments and this moment where this car flips i mean it is very well done like and you see the the mutant on top of the car go like get launched through the window of a store like it's just really violent like it, it looks really brutal and it's not like they ever really cut away or cheap out like you see all of it like you said troy so i think like this whole finale builds really well the finale is definitely the, I think, the standout portion of the film. It's, it doesn't disappoint. It's very action packed. It gives you exactly what you want to see in a zombie mutant film. Again, you're right. The pacing of this film is pretty brisk. And I was never really bored watching the film. And I was really just surprised kind of at where the film went based on where it began because when it began i thought of i thought it was going to be something completely different than what it ended up same so i, I but i love this i love this whole ending it's, it's it rivals some of the best probably you know low budget zombie film sequences we've ever seen honestly mm-hmm. they get out of the car obviously because it's flipped on its uh, it's flipped upside down and they're trying to run she is just whining i can't make it i can't make it He's like pulling her. He's like, yes, you can. And behind them, literally behind them, like 10 feet are just hordes of these mutants, like growling and chasing after them. And he pulls them into the gas station and shuts the door and is smart enough to immediately go and get a gas, a a gas can and some bottles so that they can start making Molotov cocktails. Very night of the living dead, mind you. Very night of the living dead. So she is, she's, She's doing it, but she's like, I don't know if I can do this. 
And he's like, yes, you can. You have to. We're going to get out of here alive. She starts falling victim to the classic damsel in distress trope here. Um, oh, very much so. She is, you mentioned Night of the Living Dead, but and she's not that extreme yet, but she's definitely verging towards the Barbara character in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, she is. And, you know, you can't blame her. I mean, she's been traumatizing. You have to put yourself in this poor woman's shoes. Like, she's seen a, she's, her town's being invaded by mutants. She saw a little, her, one of her students be brutally murdered. You gotta give her some credit. But in a horror film, though, you kind of, that's not a way to gain sympathy uh, from a viewer in a horror film, I don't think. But she also, they kind of go back and forth on this, like, the two characters kind of have these like highs and lows of their emotional journey where, you know, at one moment, one of them will be mourning somebody or recovering from some trauma. And then all of a sudden he starts having a moment where he starts breaking down a little bit over his brother and she starts comforting him. So they do kind of keep a balance. Like she definitely is the emotionally unstable one, but like, even when she's like, I can't run anymore. Like after the car flips, she makes it clear she injured her leg in the car flip. So she's like, she's limping, you know, it's not like she's just like, I'm too weak. Like she was injured in a very brutal car flip. She's bloodied. She's injured. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I do. I wish she didn't lean so far into the, that trope of being the damsel, but she doesn't completely lose me. I still like the character. They do have this moment now where they're locked in this gas station. It's pretty desperate and he's making these Molotov cocktails. So he sends her to look for more bottles. And when she does, she's startled to find that they're not alone in the gas station. They are there with Albert, who is also hiding. Fucking Albert with the shotgun. And she immediately is like, oh, Albert, thank God it's only you. He's like, oh, you shouldn't be thanking me. Wait till I tell you what I have in store for you. And he immediately tells her that he's going to use her for bait. Like he's going to throw her out of it, uh, so that the mutants are distracted by her so he can get away. And as he's leading her out, he's literally leading her outside. Josh attacks him and gets his gun. And there is a showdown. Josh is going to shoot him. Holly begs him not to shoot. Uh, and they agree to tie him up instead. So he, he instructs Holly, gets, get some rope and we're going to tie him up. At the same time as Josh has his gun pointed still at uh, Al, a, a mutant hand breaks through the window and grabs his arm, which distracts them all so that Al is able to grab Holly again. And is like, oh, I got her now, motherfucker. We're, I'm, she's my ticket out of here. And you're like, Jesus Christ, Al, really? But luckily, a mutant breaks through the glass window and grabs Al and pulls him outside. Yeah, this leads to the moment where they have to act upon the Molotov cocktails quickly, yeah. Uh, because the, the creatures are starting to... There's now an open window for them to get into the building. So it's now or never. So as Albert's like struggling and fighting them off and losing, he's definitely losing, Josh and Holly each light Molotov cocktails and throw them into the into the streets. And it makes for another kind of absurdly amazing sequence. Like it's honestly great because now you have these big blazing fires going on around this gas station as they start to barricade themselves inside. It's really intense. Oh yeah. And they, they're able to ward off some of them, but there's just too many of them. And they get backed into the to the backed into the gas station again when literally 
we're talking dozens and dozens of these mutants start busting through the doors, coming through the windows, coming through the back door, and corner them behind the uh, the counter. And they're trying to fight, but Roger, there's so many of these things that it really looks like, and I really thought there's no way, you know, they're going to escape this. I mean, I, I thought that they were going to die. It, it gets that close until all of a sudden bright headlights start shining through the windows of the gas station. And we see that outside the state police have finally shown up and they're shining the lights on these mutants to distract them. And as they're distracted, they literally start blowing the shit out of all of these mutants, shooting them all one by one. I I absolutely love Troy that we finally are given a horror movie in which the police make it in time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't think it's ever happened. I don't think it's ever happened. We're treated to this, like, mutant massacre in which we witnessed all of these cops just confidently standing there with guns blasting them, including this one damn Did you, this I was wondering cop. if you were going to know if you noticed <laughs> her. Oh, she's my girl. She's standing there with a side smirk, blasting <laughs> them away. And... Yeah, and like right when you think all hope is lost, like the cops show up and they just fucking destroy all of these things. And it's like such a shocking ending, but it's also so satisfying because this finale really does build and build and build and build to the point where you have no more hope. And then it lets you like <sighs> sigh a sigh of relief. And like you end the movie on the note of the two, you know, remaining characters, or so you think too emerging from the building to find that will is alive and what is the reason the cop showed up and once he found out what happened with myra and what was going on in the town he called for backup and even the um even the chief shows up and gives him his job back. gives him his job back but i don't think he accepts it does he no, he tells the he tells the the chief to shove the gun up. Yeah, his yeah. He I couldn't tell what the what he gives the sh- captain. He he gives the captain something. He's like, "Here, captain, you know where you can put that." And Josh is like, "Hey, you want to go get a drink?" And the sheriff's like, "Yeah, I'd love one." And they walk off. So he did not take his job back. Good for him. Uh, we do get a, a nice zoom out, and we see an overhead shot of all of the police cars surrounding the gas station with their lights blaring. And we fade out on a news broadcast that's telling us that this new era corporation has plans to open 10 new sites throughout the state as part of their plan to expand internationally. I love that we don't even know exactly what new era fucking is. We just know it exists and we know that they're fucking around with like contaminated waste. That's all. But overall, that ending note, like, it felt so kind of, like, ahead of its time in a way. And I love the fact that, like, this movie, even though it does get really kind of dark and bleak unexpectedly at times, uh, it still ends on, like, a light, satisfying, kind of positive note where some of these characters did make it out alive. And, and I wanted them to. Like, these are characters I genuinely wanted to survive. Well, and it, it's a nice setup for a sequel. That never happened, and I can definitely see why, because I don't think many people know about this film at all. But it would have been interesting to see them approach a sequel and set it in maybe a larger uh, populated environment, like a a big city or something along that sorts. Because seeing these these types of mutant zombies running through a, a large city would be quite a treat. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen. 
this is a title. I'm going to say it right now. Give me a remake of this. Give me a fucking remake of this because I would I would watch the fuck out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's an interesting concept, and I do think that you know, in in a in an era, you know, the the 80s, you were getting very much zombie films that were in the vein of being copies of Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead. I mean, you didn't you got you had what Return of the Living Dead. What other zombie films did you have in the eighties? That, that's the one I can think of off the top of my head, but very similar setup and everything. And the zombies were, were, were the dead coming back to life. These are not the dead coming back to life. These are people that are being infected by toxic chemicals. So that, that while they're zombies, they're not your Romero type zombies. And I, I love the fact that they, they're not hungry for brains. They are, are human flesh. They just need blood to keep their, to keep to keep growing to keep that's what they that's blood is their life force so that's what that's why their hands have these suckers on them and everything it's a very cool concept so i would definitely be interested in seeing a a remake of of this film or where they could take it or a sequel but yeah i i enjoyed it more than i thought i would i i'll be honest with you it started out and i was interested in how it started out i really liked the dynamic between the two brothers but then when poor mike justice for mike when poor Mike gets killed off and then I saw the direction it was taken. I was like, okay, okay. I got to give this film some credit for being a little bit more ballsy than I expected, you know, just, yeah. And the final, the final 15, 20 minutes, top notch, the characters, they're a little bit more three dimensional than you, than you get a lot of times in these types of films. Uh, I do really have an issue with like, the Josh character being really the reason why this happened, <laughs> you know, and kind of getting away with it. Scott free. I don't know about Scott free. I'm sure there's a lot of emotional turmoil. Well, this- and he, well, I don't know because he's a lot of times he, you know, for his brother being missing and dead, he, a lot of times he really doesn't seem all that tore up about it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I the character definitely charming grew on me. But I would have, I honestly would have preferred to see Mike. Oh, yes. Of course. I mean, my God, he's gorgeous. Or both of them. I mean, if you're going to let fucking one of yeah. them live, you should, you should have let both of them live. Because really, let's be honest, Roger, the, the Mike death, although it has an impact on the viewer, I think, when it happens, because you're not expecting it, it really has no other emotional impact throughout the film at all. The fact that Mike was killed. Even when... um Josh discovers his dead body. Yeah, there's that slight moment of crying and emotion, but then it's pretty much dropped. But no, I I, I enjoyed this film. I really did. It, it's it's one that I'm glad I got to watch. I would have probably never watched this on my own. It's a great example of a zombie film, if you want to even call it that, that does something a little unique with the concept and then runs with it and does it successfully. Well, and it's, I mean, at, at its core, I mean, if we're going to look at what these things are and what they do, these aren't zombies, they're vampires. Yeah, you're very right. These are these are technically vampires. And the fact that you can't exactly identify or describe what they are under any kind of preset category, be it zombie, vampire, even like a typical description of what a mutant is, these things are very much their own thing. And because of that reason alone, I'm drawn to this film. But like, I mean, let alone the fact that I'm, 
just a diehard fan of Romero and of Night of the Living Dead especially. And I always look for films that kind of build to in a similar climax, that survivalist kind of scenario. I love it when you get like a ragtag group of people put together who have to fight for their lives against a larger force. And I think this movie captures that in such a phenomenal way. I mean, when I first watched this, I was so entertained. And it was something I has was completely not prepared to be entertained by. Like, I really thought I was going to just be watching a shitty, disposable film. And then I, I watched it, and I found myself upset when certain characters died, surprised by certain plot twists. It kept me on my toes. Like, I did not expect that from this movie. So I think this is a gem that fans of the genre, especially zombie or that kind of category, mob monsters, you know, mobs. Um, if you're a fan of that branch of the genre, I would just absolutely suggest you seek this title out. It's on to be watch it. It's a blast. It's a, I was just going to say it's, it's very entertaining and almost has a dead pit vibe to it. So if you enjoyed dead pit, which we covered a few episodes back now, this has a very similar vibe. It's, it's just entertaining. Um, you'll have a fun time with it. It does make some ballsy choices. So yeah, folks check it out. That is, Mutant 1984, or as Roger calls it, it's 1984 Mutant. 1984 Mutant, everybody. Yeah, so that's Mutant. Here we are, Troy. We got another one. Another one down as we as we crawl slowly. I was realizing this. We are crawling slowly to the 70s. We're on episode, what, this is 64 now? 63 or 64. So we are we're getting up there. So I guess real quick, I will reveal the choice for next week since it's my pick. We have had some a blast with some of these last episodes. You know, this one, Mutant, Bloodhook was a lot of fun. Urban Legend was a lot of fun to discuss. But it's been a while since we've really tackled a, a serious film. And I like to show the audience that we are capable of doing all kinds of films, Right. And mm -hmm. we are capable oh, yeah. of having a, a serious discussion on, on films. And I think that if they go back and listen to some of our reviews and our earlier, our earlier reviews with like films, like don't look now possession, um, the cell, they can definitely see that. So I wanted to go back to something a little bit more serious this time around and get your thought on it, especially when I heard that you hadn't seen this film. Because it is legit one of my favorite films of the last probably 20 years. Wow, that's quite a compliment to this film. Yeah, so it, it, folks, it, it really is. So you're already going to know my opinion on it. I shouldn't have said that. because, But I, I, I really think this is a great film. It is a film that is could fall under the umbrella of the found footage genre. Although it's more of a mockumentary mixed with, genre, with found footage. So our next film selection is going to be the 2008 Australian film, Lake Mungo. That title is so creepy. Which was part of the Eight Films to Die For series. Remember that? And it is by far one of the best of that whole series of films. I know Roger has never seen it, so I was, am really curious to see if you're going to react to it as strongly as I did. I know that it is also a film that, although 
consensus seems to be pretty positive. I know there are also people that do not like it. So obviously with any film, you're going to have that. But since you're my podcasting partner, I'm super interested to hear your thoughts on Lake Mungo. I can't wait. So that will be our next selection, folks. If you have not seen Lake Mungo, I strongly suggest you check that one out. It is a it's a treat, and it's one of those films that you're going to think about quite a bit after the credits roll. I guarantee it. Oh, God. The last time you said that, you made me watch fucking Megan is Missing. Uh, this one, <laughs> okay, Megan is Missing is certainly disturbing. This one, I think, while it's disturbing, is definitely more cerebral, uh, and it's, it's not, uh, I, I won't say anything. I can tell you that it's not as exploitative as Meg is missing. What makes this film disturbing is nothing, do, nothing regarding, oh, let's have a 20-minute rape scene for, featuring a 14-year-old child. What's disturbing in this film is way more complex, I'll say. I'm excited. I trust you. Yeah, so folks, check, yeah, check it out. That'll be a review for next week, Lake Bungo. I'm excited because we haven't really had to talk about a serious film like that for a while. So woohoo. Just a reminder... If you like what we're doing, Apple Podcasts, go give us a five-star rating and review. Patreon. Anything else, Roger? No, just keep on coming back for more. That's all we can ask. Keep from on you. coming back for more. Hey, join the uh, Dark Night of the pa- pa- uh, Dark Night Dark Night of the Pod- Podcast Facebook group. Also, uh, we want to get more interaction there. If you have suggestions for films you want to see us cover, shoot them to us. Uh, comment on any of our posts and say, Hey, I'd love for you to cover whatever it is. And we will definitely add it to the list. Yeah, definitely. That we're eager. We're eager to make sure you guys are appeased. Absolutely. So with that, I'm going to go check into the bed and breakfast. Oh, well you have yourself a lovely night. Same with y'all night. Night.